chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, then there are black Bibles on the end of each pew. And uh, you can find the passage that we're looking at today on page 939 in that Bible. Romans 1, verses 13 through 15. And if you don't have a Bible for yourself at all, uh, then please take that black Bible home with you. It's our gift to you. We want you to have it. We want you to read it. Maybe start with the Gospel of John when you get home. It's a great place to go. And we want you to have God's Word in your life. Let's read together from Romans chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Paul says to the church in Rome that he is writing to, and ultimately the Holy Spirit says to us, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Jesus said that the summary of the entire law of God which, of course, is summarized in the Ten Commandments, but he summarized it even more succinctly when he said it's all summed up in these two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to know how to love people, then we look at the Bible. We look at the whole law of God that expands upon that. But it's certainly not less than that that we are to love God and to love people. And when we do that, we're not to disconnect those two things either. That we love God by loving people, and we love people by loving God. And whenever you have a disconnect of our love of God from our love of people, there are problems. Now, obviously, because we are imperfect people, that means we are imperfectly loving God. We are imperfectly loving people. And so there are problems. That is true. But where there's a disconnect, it's going to cause difficulties. But when we connect together our love of God with our love of people according to the ways that God has said to do that in his word, then it's going to overflow in two things in particular. And those two things are called evangelism and discipleship evangelism and discipleship. When you want to love people in such a way as to love God, and those people are not believers in Jesus Christ, then what that's going to look like is that you want to persuade them to come to faith in Jesus and to pray that God would bring them to faith, which only God can do. And when we love our brothers and sisters in Christ... And when we want to love God and put those two things together, what that looks like is what's called discipleship, where we want to help each other grow as disciples in Jesus. We want to help each other follow after Jesus. So we're not just to love God in this way that is private over here and disconnected from other people. Jesus told us that we're to love God and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. and those two things are not separate. And that's what Paul is expressing here, and that's what I hope will be our big takeaway from today as we look and and see all the depths of what these verses would, would tell us today, is that ultimately this is about saying, I want to love God by reaping spiritual fruit from the people that God would put in my life. By reaping spiritual fruit, even from people that God has not put in my life, but that I would go and seek out in order to point them to Jesus 
as an act of serving and loving and glorifying God. That's what Paul is saying that he wants to do with the church in Rome and with many other places as well. And I hope that's what we will want to do too, to love God by loving people in particular through evangelism and discipleship. Look at verse 13, first of all. If you're following along on the back of your bulletin, it says seeking a spiritual harvest. That's what Paul was doing, what he said that he wanted to do at the church in Rome, to, to get a harvest of fruit. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. We talked a little bit about this uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were in the prior verses because Paul says that he had not come to them, that he prayed for them constantly, that he mentioned them in his prayers, that he thanked God for them, but he hadn't been able to actually come to Rome yet. And it seems like that's something that might have seemed strange to to the Romans. And the reason that it would seem strange is because Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire, obviously. And for there to be a church of believers in Jesus Christ in Rome, and for there to be this famous apostle who is traveling all around the Mediterranean and to all these places preaching the gospel, for him not to go to Rome, it might have seemed a little bit weird. And it seems to me like that there might have been some questions among the people in Rome that Paul had become aware of. Why hasn't Paul come here yet? This, this famous apostle, is there some reason why he is avoiding the most influential city in the world and coming and meeting the believers who are in that city? There, there might have been a feeling. I'm, I'm just kind of trying to read between the lines here. Now, technically, that's called mirror reading in, in New Testament scholarship, trying to read back and, and try to gather from what's being said here what might have been the underlying situation behind it. But I think part of what it might have been going on is, is that they thought maybe he had not intended to come because he says, I do not want you to be unaware. I have often intended to come. So he wants to make it clear, yes, I did want to get there. They might have thought, well, maybe he's not eager to come and to preach in Rome. Because it says in verse 15, I am eager to come and preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. In fact, they might have even thought, maybe there is something about this particular man's preaching. This man, Paul, maybe there's something about it where he's ashamed to come and to do that kind of preaching here in this most influential city in the world. But he's going to clarify down in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. But he says, I haven't made it there yet, not because I didn't want to. In fact, he says, I had, I had plans. I made my own plans multiple times to go there. But of course, we learn in James that, that we can't just say to ourselves, tomorrow we will go into thus and thus a city and do business. We have to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this. We make our plans, but the Lord sets our steps, it says in Proverbs. And so the Lord had not set Paul's steps to go to Rome. He did want to go there. He had plans to go there, but he said, I have thus far been prevented from going there. This is talking about a thing that we have talked about a number of times, especially since March of last year, which is a thing called providential hindrance. Providential hindrance. God in his providence and his directing of the circumstances of the world sometimes hinders people who want to gather together with God's people from getting to do that. We have those who are at home today because they are just not able to get out of their houses anymore. Because that, that would have been the case, COVID or not. 
people in nursing homes. We have those who were in the hospital this week and are just not in a position to get here today. But Paul was not in those positions. He was just in a position where God had directed the circumstances of what was going on in his life to where he just could not get to Rome, despite the fact that he wanted to. But the feeling among them might have been, maybe with who this guy is and with the kind of gospel that he's preaching and the particular kind of spin that he would put on it and the way that he would do it, maybe he thinks that we are not a good fit for that gospel. And what Paul is going to say is absolutely not. Absolutely not. The gospel is for you who are in Rome. It is for you who are Greeks, you who are barbarians. It is for you who are wise. It's for you who are foolish. It is something where I intend to come. I am not ashamed of it. I want to come. But the reason that he wants to come, he says, here is the reason to do this. In order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. He's been going around to all kinds of cities, all kinds of places, all kinds of missionary journeys. And he has been reaping a spiritual harvest. He's gone from city to city preaching the gospel. And God has used the gospel in those cities where he's preached as the power of God unto salvation. And he's seen people saved. Saw a church started in one of the most godless cities in the world, Corinth. All kinds of places, Ephesus, where, where they were, had this great temple and they loved to cry out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and hang on to their magic books. And, and as he was going around the world, God was bringing about spiritual fruit. And when he went to places where there was an already established church, he was building up the believers in those places. And he says, I want to do that with you who are in Rome too. But I want you to see this. This needs to be something that's on our hearts too. Not just on the heart of an apostle, not just on the heart of a missionary, but on the heart of every Christian. Is that we want to love God in such a way that God is going to be glorified through bringing about spiritual fruit in others through what we would do in our love of others. Now, often when we think about spiritual fruit, we think about what it's going to be in ourselves. Because that's, that's part of what it is. In Galatians, in Galatians chapter 5, it says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we want to see those fruits growing in ourselves by the grace of God, through the means of grace, things like being in the Word and in prayer and in fellowship with the church. We want to see those fruits growing up in ourselves to the glory of God. But those, here's the difference between seeing that in yourself and seeing that in others. You will see that in yourself in heaven forever. But there are things we can do on earth that you can't do in heaven there are things you can't do on earth that you, or that you can do on earth that you can't do in heaven. You cannot evangelize in heaven. In heaven, everybody already knows and loves Jesus. You're not going to win somebody to faith when you're in heaven. Everybody there already has faith. In fact, they don't even need faith because they're not walking by faith anymore. They're walking by sight. They see Jesus. Their faith is complete. But you know what Paul says in Philippians 1 when he's talking about whether or not he's going to die. 
By the way, Philippians was when he finally made it to Rome, and it wasn't in the way that he thought he was going to get to Rome. He thought he was going to go there on a regular missionary journey, but he ended up going there as a prisoner in chains with a shipwreck along the way and all kinds of other things, and he ended up there in house arrest in the middle of the city of Rome and not knowing whether he'd be executed, and that's how he ended up finally getting to the Romans and preaching the gospel to them. But while he's there, he says that he doesn't know whether it would be better to go ahead and be executed or not. He doesn't know whether it would be better. He says, in fact, it would be better to depart and to be with Christ. And he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, I am hard-pressed which one I will choose. But then he says, here is the reason why he knows that he's going to go on living. Stay in this world instead of departing to go to heaven. Here's the reason that he says in Philippians 1.22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Paul says, this is my reason for living in this world. Between now and the time when God takes me home to be with Christ, what I'm here for is fruitful labor. Exactly the same thing that he's expressed in Romans 1.13, that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. That's the reason why Jesus calls us to be disciples too. He told his disciples, this is why I have called you is that you would bear fruit, that you would bear fruit. This, this fruit that he's talking about is not just the fruit in himself, because that goes on in heaven. He's talking about seeing fruit in other people. I want to reap a harvest. That harvest comes in two ways. One is evangelizing, and one is discipling. Evangelizing is where you go and you tell the gospel to people so that they can be saved. It could be something where you are on a street corner, with a microphone and a speaker, and everyone is saying, that must be a crazy person. Or it could be the kind of thing where you are telling your four-year-old daughter, hey, you're a sinner, and Jesus died to save sinners. Or it could be anything in between, where you're talking to your neighbor, where you're talking to, to your, your friend, your coworker, your, your your fellow student, whoever it is, your or it could be where you're going around the world as a missionary. But this is what Paul wants to do. When he comes to Rome, he wants to see a harvest as he would preach the gospel in Rome and people who had never heard and never considered the idea of the creator God of the universe being their judge would see exactly who God is in his holiness and exactly who they are in their sinfulness and exactly who Christ is as Savior and that they would come to him in faith in Jesus and that there would be a harvest of those who would come and believe. You can't do that in heaven. But you can do that here. See a harvest of preaching and believing through that preaching. It's evangelizing and it's discipleship. Where there would be a harvest not just in terms of seeing people come into the faith but also of building up those who are in the faith. We, we have come to faith in Jesus. If you're a believer in Christ, you've come to faith, you are, sanct- you, are, excuse me, you are justified. You're counted as right before God. But we're being sanctified. We're to be growing in grace. And part of the way that he does that, part of the way that he builds us up and makes us bear more fruit, is through us encouraging each other. That's what he said a couple of verses ago, that he wants to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine, to edify each other. I think that's something we can't really do in heaven either. 
we're going to be standing before Christ complete, which is awesome to think about. But something that we have that we can do here that you can't do in heaven is see someone who is a believer in Christ and yet who you see areas as you love them, not, not, not looking for things to nitpick at them, but you see, hey, here's a place where I could help this brother grow. Here's a place where I could build this brother up. Here's a place where we together could become more Christ-like. That's a thing where there is a harvest of fruit to be reaped in not just making disciples, but in maturing disciples and building up believers. And here's what Jesus said within his earthly ministry. He said Matthew 9, 36, it says, he saw the crowds and he felt compassion they, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to those disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That's what Paul is saying. I want to be a laborer in the harvest. I want to love these people so that there is a harvest brought in to the glory of God. I want to tell them the gospel, the message of the love of God in Jesus Christ. He says in, in Colossians 1 that the gospel was going out in the whole world and is bearing fruit and growing as it goes out, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. See, there's those two kinds of harvests of fruit. The one is the bringing in of the harvest, those, those who are unbelievers being brought to faith in Jesus, and the other is the gospel bearing fruit among you as it's growing. Paul wants to see both of those things. We want to see both of those things. Do you want to see both of those things? Do you want to go about the purpose that God has you still here for in the world rather than taking you straight to heaven when you believed? The purpose is that you would bear fruit, that not only would you bear fruit in your life, but that you would stir up others to love and good works, that you would be a witness of these things that you would tell people of Christ, and that you'd help people grow in Christ. I, I, I tell my kids all the time, I think, I think we have like an unusually smart bunch of kids. I know everybody thinks they have that, but I, I think we really do. But I tell my kids, you're, you're really smart, but being smart is, is not worth as much as working hard. This is the thing you need to know in general, just in life. Being smart is not worth as much as working hard. Having potential is not the same thing as actually doing something. Being somebody who everybody thinks, well, maybe that guy will do something someday. <laughs> not the same thing as getting it done. Getting a good degree doesn't mean you're going to be a good worker. And in the same way, being a great hearer of the word is not the same thing as being a doer of the word. Being someone who says to yourself, I'm going to absorb the scriptures for myself so that I can be built up. You're saying to yourself, well, I want to grow in lots and lots of potential. But then where the rubber hits the road is when we go and say, how am I then going to pour this into others? How am I going to put this to work in evangelizing and in discipling? in making new believers, and in maturing the believers who are there. A Lamborghini does not do you much good if you never drive it. And being a great hearer of the word 
doesn't do much good to the glory of God if you don't then take that and apply it to a spiritual harvest in other people and preaching the gospel and seeing people built up, seeing people built up. Who is it that he wants to reap this harvest among? Well, it's among the Romans, but not just among the Romans, among all kinds of people who are in Rome and all kinds of people who are not in Rome. And that's what we see in the next verse, in verse 14. To reap this harvest among all kinds of people. He says in verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now, before we start thinking about Greeks and barbarians and all that kind of stuff, look at the words he says, I am under obligation. Under obligation. Literally, he says, I am a debtor. This is saying there is this... It's almost like he could picture in his mind a legal document saying, this is what I owe to God. There's no getting around this. And here's what it is. To go and to preach the gospel to all kinds of people. Greeks, barbarians, wise and foolish. He says, I am under obligation. Now, Paul, certainly, he's under obligation. He's, he is a minister of the gospel. And not just a minister of the gospel, but a missionary of the gospel. And not just a missionary of the gospel, but an apostle called by Jesus Christ. It's the way he introduced himself in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Certainly Paul is under obligation. Certainly Paul's a debtor to tell the gospel. But what about you and me? Well, I want to submit to you today that if you have the gospel... You are also under obligation. And does not, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're under obligation to become a missionary. Not, God doesn't give everybody the providential circumstances and the proper gifts and graces and calling to go and to devote their lives to overseas missions as Paul was doing. But what the Bible says about us who know the gospel is that we have a treasure in jars of clay. We're the jars of clay, but we've got a treasure and that is a treasure that is a life-giving treasure. We are to be those who are an aroma of the gospel. Now, to those who would reject the gospel, it's an aroma that stinks. To those who would believe, it is a sweet-smelling aroma unto eternal life as the, the gospel would go out and they would believe and be saved. I didn't make up that analogy, by the way. That's straight from the Apostle Paul himself. We're the aroma of Christ. We're the aroma of Christ. We are under obligation. Even though we're not apostles, we need to use the gospel for people to hear so that they can be saved and to build up the saints too. Did you know that if people don't hear the gospel, they won't believe the gospel? And did you know that if people don't believe the gospel, they will die in their sins and suffer eternally in hell? We're under obligation. We're under obligation. But it's not just an obligation, it's a joy. It's good news. It's good news to be told. It's good news to be told as we can come and we can say to someone, hey, God is holy. Man is sinful. Christ is the Savior. Faith is the answer. Faith is how this comes to you. That's what the, you, you want to remember. I try to tell you this as often as I can without making it a little too annoying but 
God, man, Christ response. That's the gospel. Remember those things. God, man, Christ response. God is holy. Man is a sinner. Christ is the only Savior. And the response to be saved is faith. Repentant faith, turning to Jesus and resting on him alone, not works that we can do. And you can do this. You, under obligation, under obligation to your neighbor, under obligation to the stranger that God would have you to have a conversation with, under obligation to all kinds of people to say, hey, God is a holy God. And you, friend, because I care about you, you need to know that you're a sinner like me and like the world. We were born into sin. And that's bad news, but there's good news. God has loved us by sending his own son who gave his life as a propitiation to pay the penalty for sinners like you and me. You might not use the word propitiation right away with somebody who's not familiar with Bible terms, but you're going to tell them Jesus died for sinners like you. You say, if you want to receive the free gift of eternal life, then believe. Put your faith in Jesus. We are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how God saves people. That is how God brings his elect into his kingdom, is by us indiscriminately telling the gospel to all kinds of people that he would put in our lives so that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We'll get to that verse in a couple of weeks. A couple of weeks. He says, though, that this obligation, this obligation is both to Greeks and to barbarians. As he's talking about different kinds of people, he here is speaking in ethnic terms. Ethnic terms. Who are the Greeks? Well, in just the language that he's using, the way that he's talking there, you have here the idea of Greeks as one group and then barbarians as everybody else in the world. The Greeks were those who were of Greek-speaking culture. Now, even though this was the Roman Empire that he was speaking into, it was still at the point where um, Latin hadn't taken over as kind of the the dominant language. Greek was still sort of the language of the educated, uh, the language of those who were in positions that were high and lofty. And so Greeks were those who were in the dominant cultural position of, of sort of this high respect now, if, if this were looked at from the perspective of Marxism or of critical theory, then you might call the Greeks the bourgeoisie, the ruling class, the beneficiaries of cultural hegemony and of structural power. Now, Marxism and critical theory might say, therefore, tear them down. But Paul says, they're human beings. The gospel is for them. The gospel is for them. Many of in Rome would have been among that group, but others would have been among what are called the barbarians here. Barbarians sounds like a derogatory term, and eventually it became a derogatory term, but when Paul was using it, it wasn't. That's kind of what tends to happen with terms a lot of the times when you're talking about a group of people who are outsiders in various ways. No matter what term you use, eventually it becomes a derogatory term. But at the point when Paul was saying it, he just meant non-Greeks, those who were not among that dominant culture, not among the educated, not among those who were in high society, but those who were on the outside, those who spoke other languages, and this would include everybody else in the world. This, even in those terms, would have included the Jewish people, Though Paul is going to talk in just a couple of verses about Jews and Greeks, and certainly the gospel is for the Jew first, and also to the Greek, and of course to barbarians too. 
And as you think about this, this ethnic way of thinking that Paul is laying out here, when he says Greeks and barbarians, I want you to be aware that we, ethnically, in these terms, are a barbarian-majority church. If we're thinking in ethnic terms, we have ways that we think of ethnic terms that have to do with our current cultural situation and our current way of how, how history has come down to us and all those kinds of things, but those things have been fluid throughout the ages. And, and just thinking of my own ancestors, and for most of you, your own ancestors, they would have been among what were called here the barbarians, the outsiders. And man, I am thankful to God that the gospel has come to us. So thankful for that. But the gospel is for everybody. We're a majority barbarian church. There were majority Greek churches. There were majority Jewish churches, all kinds of, of places. But what you have here is that the gospel is to go out to all kinds of people. There might have been those in Rome, as I said earlier, who were wondering, is, does Paul really think that his gospel is for us? Do, do, is he avoiding Rome for some reason? Is it because we tend to be high-minded Greek speakers? Other letters in the New Testament kind of let on that, that the way that Paul was viewed, his, his letters were high and lofty. His, his letters that we have in the New Testament indicated something of his educational pedigree, his ability to write in high and lofty ways, his ability to address philosophical issues, those kinds of things. But we're also told, and in particular this was bothersome in the Corinthian church, they didn't like this, that when Paul showed up and he preached in person, he didn't sound that way. He sounded to them foolish. When he came and he preached, he did not use those high philosophical terms. He preached a simple message of the cross, which was foolishness to those who were perishing. The Greeks sought wisdom, the Jews sought signs, but he preached Christ crucified. So they might have wondered, well, is that why he's not coming here? Because, well, what he's saying is foolish. Is it foolish? Well, he says here that he's come not just to preach to those who are Greeks and to those who are barbarians, but to those who are wise and to those who are foolish. To those who are foolish. Now, you need to know that the gospel is for you. The good news of Jesus Christ is for you. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. There are some who would say, well... You know, this, this gospel, this biblical kind of gospel, this faith alone kind of gospel, that's, that's great for those who are from sort of like British heritage and Germans and places where the Reformation hit. But then, then you look at that other, those other ethnicities like the, like the Italians and the Irish. Maybe the Catholic gospel is for them. Maybe, which is a different gospel. We'll get, we're not going to talk about that right now, but it's a different gospel. Maybe the gospel is for this group of people who grew up with a familiarity with the idea of Jesus and church. But then in India, the gospel's not for them. They, Vishnu and all of these various other gods, those are for them. And, and, and maybe, may, you know, maybe, you, maybe you go over to Saudi Arabia and the gospel's not for them. They have some idea of a monotheistic God and that, that should be good enough for them. No, this says this is the one gospel 
I am under, under obligation to Jews and to Greeks and to barbarians. He's going to say that this is without distinction. Jews, Greeks, barbarians, the wise, the foolish. Maybe you would say to yourself, well, maybe this message is just for those who are simple-minded. Maybe that's why they latch on to it. Maybe they are clinging to religion because they don't know where else to go. As was famously said by a politician a few years ago. Maybe it's just this, just this crutch for the weak. And I'm high-minded. I know better. I'll put a flying spaghetti monster sticker on the back of my car. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. All right. Maybe you would think the other way. Maybe you'd think to yourself, well, this pastor, sometimes he's saying things that are over my head. This must be for other people. Which I hope I'm not saying things like that, but maybe you'd say, well, it's just for, it's, it's just for the high-minded people. It's not for simple people like me. I've got to go find something else that's for me. No, it's to, to the wise, to, to the regular, and to the foolish, too. It's the one gospel the one gospel. Now, as we think about this, I want to go back and think a little bit about this, these ethnic categories that he, he thought about here. When we, when we think about ethnic categories, obviously that kind of pokes at us, kind of pokes at us as Americans, kind of pokes at us in the contemporary situation that we're in and the discussions that are being had and the ways that those discussions are being had. Guys, you need to know that there have been actual ethnic problems in America that still resonate today. I, 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 that ought to be obvious to us, but I think sometimes there's these political things where you go, you know, because one political party goes wrong in one way, the other political party thinks that the right way to go is to go wrong in the other way. And to deny that there is such thing as ethnic difficulties in America, there is such thing as ethnic difficulties in America. There is. What, our history deeply affects us today. It really does. You think it doesn't affect us today? Why does Second Baptist Church of Madawan exist two blocks away from us? It's been very hard for me to dig through our own historical records and try to figure that out. Because there's not a whole lot of evidence left over from how that happened. But obviously we're affected by that today. You look up at the balcony that exists in our sanctuary... Again, I don't have any historical records for us to go on, but do you know this church was built in 1860? And it's pretty likely that as Matawan became a small town that was known as a place where escaped slaves would come and, and that, that there was a, a decent population to them who settled in Matawan, it's pretty likely that that spot right up there is where they would have been told to go just on the basis of what had happened and how churches operated at that time. So e even as we sit here in our own spot with our own architecture, there's reminders right around here, hey, we have a history that's not so great. And then we think to ourselves, well, maybe those people back in those days when they were strong Christians in some ways, and maybe they had actually really, really good biblical reasons for supporting slavery and, and all these kinds of things, but if you go back and read it, they didn't. They had terrible reasons for it. It was ugly, ugly stuff and totally inconsistent with what some of the heroes of the faith would say even about things like being created in the image of God. And then they would go and they would say, but 
slavery is necessary because people with this color of skin just can't take care of themselves. What an ugly thing to say. Oh, guys. And we think to ourselves, that doesn't affect us anymore. We're past that. It does. It does still affect us. There is still such a thing as a sin of racism. And I'm not saying racism in terms of the way that critical theory would define that, in terms of structural things that are beyond yourself so that by the very fact being white that you are racist, that's not what I mean. I mean that there is racial prejudice. And it really does affect real people. It really does. You need to know that. You need to know that tomorrow is the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre, which I didn't know about until embarrassingly late in my life, 100 years ago tomorrow, that there was this massive thriving black community in Tulsa that was torched and people killed and absolutely just raised to the ground. You need to know that as we look around, we're deeply affected as churches, as churches even today are still split up racially. And that's a weird thing. But you also need to know that the world's solutions to these things are not the same thing as the Bible's solutions to these things. The world's solutions to these things are not the same thing as the Bible's solutions to these things. When you look at things like critical race theory, which it's becoming one of those things that is known as bad in certain circles, which it is, um, but, but a lot of people just don't even really know why it's bad or what it is and those kinds of things. But guys, it, it, it just addresses racial discrimination by bringing more racial discrimination and saying, well, th- this group, which has exercised hegemonic structural power for all this time, must therefore be identified as a group and torn down from that power so that we can then... It's just, it's got all kinds of stuff in it. It, it draws from Marx, it draws from Freud, it draws from uh, Marcuse. It draw, it's just ugly stuff, all right? But here's what the Bible says. You need to know what the Bible says. God's word gives us hope that the world cannot know and does not know about knowing that the gospel is for Greeks and barbarians. Here's what it is, Acts 17, 26. He, that's God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You need to know that God created human beings. And he created one race of man from one man whose name is Adam and his wife Eve. That right there is the starting place that the secular world does not have. The secular worldview, looking at mankind, has absolutely no philosophical basis for saying that mankind can be on an equal standing. The philosophical worldview of the world is that various races must have evolved in various ways. And how can you possibly say that we're on equal footing if that were the case? But that's not what's true. And that's not what the Bible tells us. He says instead, from one man, God has created every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. God has done that. God has done that. And he also tells us this, that our unity was bought with the blood of Jesus. Our unity is not created by tearing down those who are in hegemonic power. Our unity is not by embracing various kinds of secular theories. Our unity is this in Ephesians 2, verse 13 to 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
And he's speaking there in ethnic terms. Jews and Gentiles being brought together, those who were far off, brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I know it sounds, it it, it almost sounds just too silly to say, just too easy, but it's absolutely true. Jesus is the answer. Even when you look at something as as complex and historically complicated and, and difficult to wrap our minds around as racism in America, Jesus is still the answer. We need to preach the gospel. Did you know that, that, that people without distinction are sinners before God? Sinners before God. This, this actually, and here in Romans, what we're looking at is, is about to kick off a section that, start, that goes from Romans 1.18 all the way through the middle of chapter 3 that's just proving that everybody is a sinner who is lost apart from faith in Jesus. And the way that he wraps up that section is, is this. He says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. Guys, that's Jews, that's Greeks, that's barbarians, that's black, that's white, that's everybody. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God without distinction and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's the solution. We are sinners who need the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I know, I know there's lots of other things that can be said about that, but the ultimate solution is Christ. That's why he can say in Colossians 3, here there is not Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And we are under obligation to all, just as Paul was, to preach the gospel. To the wise and to the foolish, not just to those of various ethnicities and nationalities and things like that, but to the wise and to the foolish. As we prayed together from, from 1 Corinthians 1 earlier, that God tends to bring in those who are foolish. If you wonder, why is it that God has brought so many people into his kingdom who are not well respected by the rest of the world, it's to the glory of God. So he did that on purpose. He did that on purpose so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's what he says. That's good. It's beautiful. Now, some might look at the Christian faith and say, well, guys, the, look at the Bible. The, the Bible is so complex. How could anybody ever treat this faith like it's simple? And yet it is. It's so simple that, that Jesus can say, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Little children. He could say something as simple as, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. That's really simple. That is really simple. You do not have to have a PhD to get that. And on the other hand, some look at the gospel and say, well, it's so simple. How could anybody treat the Christian faith like it's complex? And yet it is. It is. It's so complex that the apostle can say, how the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways But it's not two gospels, one for the wise and one for the foolish, not a gospel that was more fitted for the outside kind of cities and not so well fitted for Rome. It is one gospel, and it is simple enough for a child to take hold of, and it's complex enough for a university scholar 
to pour his whole life into, and it's powerful enough to save both of them. That one gospel, it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also for the Greek. It's by grace alone, it's through faith alone, it's in Christ alone, it is simple, and we'll be trying to wrap our minds around it for all eternity, and it's to all without distinction. A few implications of, of this. One is that we need to be involved in getting the gospel to all nations. If, if we are under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, that includes ethnicities, people groups, nations who are far from us, who have never crossed our minds before. Now, in our church, maybe they've crossed our minds more than in many places because we try to put different nations on our prayer list on a regular basis to be praying for them. But we're under obligation. We, we want to be involved in getting the gospel, first of all, locally, by our own evangelism to, to all kinds of people without partiality, whoever it is that God would put in our path, but also by support of the local church, which does evangelism, and also globally. We need to pray for missions. When I say missions, I mean the spread of the gospel beyond linguistic, ethnic, and national boundaries. That's what it is. Getting the gospel to places that we wouldn't normally go because we're going to send it. We need to pray for missions. We need to give to missions. We need to consider whether God would actually have us personally to go and to do missions. Secondly, we need to rejoice at the diversity of the people that God brings into his kingdom. Okay. What I just said, some of you say to yourself, does that mean that the pastor is liberal? <laughs> the reason I say we need to rejoice at the diversity of the people that God brings into his kingdom is because the Bible says that that is happening in heaven right now and something that we will be doing for all eternity. There is a beautiful worship song that I have never heard the words to, or excuse me, I've never heard the tune to, and I'll, we'll get to hear it when we get to heaven, but here's the words in Revelation 5, 9, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. You hear what that is? In heaven right now, they are rejoicing that God has brought in people from every ethnicity, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. They're rejoicing in it. that they were, These people were bought by the blood of Jesus and brought in now, what this doesn't mean, if we say we're going to rejoice in the diversity of the people that God would bring into his kingdom, that doesn't mean we're going to try to manufacture that diversity. You cannot manufacture the work of the Holy Spirit. We can do the things that God would do in order to, to be the means of grace. We can preach the gospel. The Holy Spirit uses that. We can, we, we can pray. Those are the primary things that we do to see people brought into the kingdom. We pray. And we preach the gospel. We can't manufacture it. It is not biblical to say, here is our target demographic for the gospel. Paul says, I'm under obligation to Greeks and to barbarians. But when we do see it, we can rejoice in it. We can rejoice in it. 
And I just have to say, there was absolutely nothing in our plans as a church where we said to ourselves, let's try to see what we can do in order to get to a point where we have a majority-minority deacon board. We did not do that. And yet God, by his grace, did that. We just looked in our congregation to see who is it that God has granted the necessary qualifications and gifts and graces to, and, and that's how God has arranged it, and we rejoice in that, and we rejoice anytime God brings anyone into the kingdom. And it's also worth rejoicing because it's rejoiced in in heaven that God would bring all kinds of people into the kingdom and use them and gift them and give them grace. And this is not requiring a certain level of intellect as we go out. We don't have to say, well, I'm just going to preach to the smart people. You know what? That, that, that's the um, Scientologists. Don't they do that? They get, like do an IQ test, and if you don't score high enough, they just send you away. Now, Paul says, I'm under obligation to the wise and the foolish. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. And we rejoice in that. Then he ends it by saying this, even to you. Even to you, Romans. Look in verse 15. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. To you also who are in Rome. He, this eagerness, eagerness to preach the gospel. I mean, he's already said he is under obligation. He's already said that he's been set apart for the gospel of God. Not his own gospel, but God's gospel. He says in 1 Corinthians nine sixteen, Necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel where he's saying, I'm not just looking to see who's going to pay me to preach the gospel. I'm going to preach the gospel, whether I get paid or not, whether people like it or they stone me and leave me for dead. <laughs> I'm going to preach the gospel. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. But he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you, to you also who are in Rome. I am eager to preach the gospel. He's about to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed to walk into the most powerful city in the world and preach the foolishness of Christ crucified. Some people think that they have to adjust their gospel based on who it is that they're speaking to. They think that they have to have a different gospel. This is, I, I went to a university that was considered high-minded, and there was a, a feeling among those who would send... Um, ministers to, to be campus ministers there, that they needed to pick liberal campus ministers. Because if the, they were liberal campus ministers, then maybe if their liberal theology would connect better to the high-minded students of Vanderbilt University. And it's just garbage. <laughs> no, I am eager to preach the gospel to you, the simple, plain gospel of Christ crucified because it is the power of God unto salvation. Even to you, Romans... Even to you Romans and even to you First Baptist Church of Matawan. Even to you New Jerseyans. Greeks and barbarians, they're not just abstract faraway people. They're people who are sitting right around us with real names. It's the people that you've lived next to for 10 years. I don't know if you ever have the same feeling that I do where sometimes it's harder for me to tell the gospel to somebody that I know well than somebody that I don't know well. It's a lot easier for me to, to walk up to somebody just who's out for a stroll by the water uh, on a lovely evening and hand them a, a tract and, and start talking to them a gospel, about the gospel. That's a lot easier for me than starting up a conversation with the neighbors that we've lived next to for eight years when they invite us over to their backyard to tell them the gospel. 
and yet we're under obligation. And those Greeks and those barbarians, they may be those who have been sitting next to you in church for the last 10 years, who you need to build them up in their faith. I want to preach the gospel. He says, I want to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. I want to preach the gospel in Rome to those who don't know the gospel. I want to preach the gospel in Rome to those who are part of the church who do know the gospel. You, you, person with a name, person with a face looking at me or not looking at me, preach the gospel. You need the gospel, and the people around you need the gospel. It's not just the fools and the barbarians. It's also the wise and the Greeks. It's not just the unbelievers of the world who need to be built up and have a spiritual harvest among them. It's also the believing people of the church. It's you. It's me. I need the gospel. You need the gospel. We need to tell it as part of our glorifying God to love people by telling them the good news of Jesus Christ, to reap a harvest of making and maturing disciples. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, the grace that we have in Christ that is uh, offered to all without distinction because we all without distinction are sinners who are in desperate need of your grace, whether, whether people of one ethnicity or another ethnicity, whether people of one level of education or another or anything in between. God, we desperately need your grace. And as those who have received your grace, I pray that you'd help us to be those who would love you by reaping a spiritual harvest among the people in our lives, telling the gospel so people can be saved, building each other up so we can grow together in Christ. God, I have addressed some issues today that I am just, I don't know if I addressed them right or not. You know, God. And I pray that you would cause your word to be what shines through. God, I pray that you would be our peace, that you would be the one who would bring those who are far off and bring them near in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would, uh, Lord, you would just magnify the Son of God. God, I pray for our own nation as there is still just so much, not just hurt, but so much confusion about what to do with some of the things that we've talked about today. I, I pray that you would point more and more people to the gospel of Jesus Christ that would then be our peace and our healing. God, I pray that you would help us to love you, help us to love people, help us to love you by loving people with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.